Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And you're listening to Green Left Radio. Yep, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane, who's back from... Uh, how long were you away for? Uh, about four weeks. Yeah, in Germany. So, right. yeah, he's back on the show and ready to um, bring you some radical news um, from Green Left Weekly Radio. Woo! Well, um, I guess um, we can sort of start with... Um, um, I guess sort of the latest sort of headline news um, that's been kind of like making the rounds. Um, some one of the biggest ones has been um, the Guardian has recently sort of leaked a number um, around hundreds or thousands of files related to Nauru, um, and in those files it kind of reveals the extent of kind of the abuse that has occurred um, towards refugees who are kept in detention in Nauru. Um, it's, I guess it doesn't really confirm any, it pretty much reconfirms already what we knew mm. that's already happening on Roo. Uh, but it's kind of like, you know, put, it's put the government in an even worse position, um, than what they were previously. Um, there was some, um, Scott, Mo- I think Peter Dunton had kind of the most repulsive kind of response, um, to these files and his response was basically, Oh, refugees have self um, um, have self harmed themselves to come to Australia, which I get it's um, and so it's guess it's um, that's making I guess it's putting Australia into sort of a worse position in terms of how they um, of their humane treatment of refugees. And I did read an article. Um, that argue, argued in actually in light of this in response to um, from the Guardian um, that argued that um, um, Australia's detention regime is not going to last and the reason um, he or she cites that is because uh, because of the pressure because um, Nauru's tied to a lot of um, security firms and these security firms you know for um, are not going to you know want to maintain from public pressure are not going to want to maintain these these regimes because they're simp- because a lot of the kind of um security um and and the workers on these centers are outsourced to sort of security companies mm. um corporations that don't want to, um that would eventually concede to the pressure yeah right so that's like the achilles heel of the whole uh nasty gulag set yep. up is those private security firms. Yeah, and if enough pressure is put onto them, then potentially that might be a question of, like, you know, tactics for the refugee movement. Maybe the mm. focus should be on targeting these. And actually there has been um, quite a number of actions. In fact, last weekend on Sunday, um, there was an um, action against Wilson Security in Melbourne Central, which basically... Um, Basically, groups of activists came to Melbourne Central in sort of where the central, where all the activism put down 
um, put out banners that said, you know, Wilson Security, who are one of the sort of um, corporations that um, profit from the det- detention regime, mm. um, that Wilson Security inv- um, uh, has blood on their hands. And I think it was quite a, a significant action. Um, mm. And they've, uh, those groups of activists have actually been consistently doing, you know, direct action kind of activities because um, there's actually a number of Wilson security um, car parks mm. um, and those car parks have actually been the subject of um, direct action from those uh, activists um, putting into account their the compliance in the crimes of um, the tension regimes. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I think it, that's, that makes a lot of sense, that strategy of targeting the security companies because, like, basically the government is a much bigger and more powerful entity yeah. than these little private relatively speaking, much smaller um, private companies. They're more prone to that pressure. Ah, I guess... Um, I've, I've been a bit remiss too. Yeah. I should mention that, uh, as is the case every Friday and with every show on 3CR, we are broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and sovereignty was never ceded. This always was, always will be Aboriginal right. land. Right. Thanks for that, Zane. Um, I guess the next um, sort of big sort of thing that's um, got the hysteria of, of the Australian media, um, for a lot of people as well, um, is the census. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we're, um, around Tuesday to Wednesday, the census opened, um, but there has been some concerns about the privacy issues of the census with... Um, the, main, the issue stems from the fact that um, when you enter in your data into the census, apparently they actually keep it on record. Um, you actually also have to put down your real name, um, which is that a new thing? Yes, this is the first census in which you're being required to put your uh, real name down. No. In previous censuses, there was a, a whole lot of... Um, that was a really big deal. Like it was a really big sort of focus. And I've actually, in the previous census, I worked as a collector, and we were briefed very um, rigorously from the census staff. You know, people are concerned about their privacy. It's really important that you uh, emphasise to people that this is anonymous. We'll be collecting their data. We'll be making sure that we're not overlapping you and your neighbours' data, mm. but we're not attaching your name to the data that you're giving us. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. I guess um, I think that's very valid concern. And on, honestly, with my knowledge of statistics, I have no idea why you would need their real their real names for any kind of census sort of data collection, um, unless some experts' um, um, opinion says otherwise. I don't actually see. Um, why you would need to have your real name to have. I guess in response to it, some green, um, some Greens politicians like Scott Ludlam have said on record that they'll be boycotting um, the census. Um, boyc- um, not filling the census apparently has the risk of occurring sort of fines. Mm. Um, but I guess the issues, um, I think it's what's funny is um, coming out of when the census website w- went up, um, it apparently had a DD, a denial of service attack from hackers, um, which is possible, um, which is, tr- I think it was true, but at the same time, apparently, this is in the context of the census, um, actual, um, the actual process by which the census was taken, like the website, the infrastructure, apparently received a lot of cuts. So, 
Um, there's actually less, there's less um, servers, um, less workers working on the sensors. Mm. And um, the government's response, I guess, was blame the hackers, even though well, it's kind of like a natural yeah. result of what was going to happen if you were cutting yeah. money from the actual process by which the census was taken. Yeah. You need those geeks. You need those skilled work, collar workers who know about computers and how to stop DDoS attacks. I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. But I've got but, friends who know about it and I respect their good work. Well, I think, um, yeah, I guess. Clearly not enough of them. It's going to be interesting. Um, I'm over sure because, you know, I actually haven't done my census yet because of, I couldn't actually do it when I tried to do it. Um, hmm. because the website was down and it was playing up and I couldn't even get past the first screen. Uh, so, and there's probably got to be lots of people who might have given up on trying to um, to enter in the um, to fill in the census because of mm. um, because of um, the sort of out- outages that happened. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a red herring. There's all this terrorism legislation. Um, there's multiple layers of state security apparatuses that uh, they know who you are and where you live and what you eat for breakfast and uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a red herring to have all this focus on the census when actually there's been whole reams of surveillance state legislation mm. over the past decade and uh, it's a similar thing of in Germany because of the history of the Stasi in East Germany and so on over there mm. um a lot of my partners, a lot of Caroline's friends uh, don't have Facebook because they're worried about being monitored. But mm-hmm. again, it's like, mm-hmm. yes, Facebook is a tool that can be used to monitor you. But if you think that you're flying under the radar by not having a Facebook account, <laughs> I would contend that you are sorely mistaken. Well, um, actually... Um, Google right now actually takes a lot of your personal information these days. Well, that's one of its the biggest criticisms that Google receives is the amount of personal information that it collects. Um, of course, it it will um, it um, Google's sort of official PR response is that only the information it collects is actually for the purposes of marketing, and you kind of notice it when you. Um, Go for a Google that um, it gives you sort of ads that are sort of tailored to tailored um, based on your browsing history. Um, uh, I guess another thing, my kind of thing with the census is I do find some of the outrage about sort of the privacy concerns to be like you know I I I I respect the concerns. I think they're very valid concerns, but. I don't, I've not seen the same level of outrage for, you know, the treatment of, you know, refugees, especially in light of the Nauru files. And that's actually what an article that, um, I read recently in The Guardian argued that, you know, it's kind of a bit questionable that people are having all this hysteria over the census. The government, of course, is also in hysterics about the census, yet they've not made the same kind of response to the inhumane treatment of refugees and detention centres. Mm. And, of course, there's even the more <laughs> recent case of the inhumane treatment of um, sh- uh, Aboriginal teenagers in juvenile detentions in light of, like, the, mm. you know, the Dondow. Yeah, so it's like, oh, OK, so you want to talk about civil liberties? <laughs> um, yeah, that, yeah. That's, those are clear civil liberties that have been uh, violated. About Aboriginal people being systematically beaten to death in our prison systems, including kids, uh, about... Those concentration camps. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess um, ne- 
an, another sort of um, recent, um, has anyone been, have you been watching the Olympics, saying? Can't say I have. I haven't owned a TV in uh, over 15 years. Well, there's, um, I guess um, before we move on to our first interview, we, um, you know, the Olympics is actually quite a political, um, there's a lot of serious political implications with the Olympics. I mean, it's not just um, a game, or like a nice game where, mm. where you know, all the countries compete at each other. Um, it's a very expensive festivus that happens every four years. Yeah, and it's um, typically in the case of Rio, um, mm. there's been like, you know, a lot of, um, criticisms by the fact that you know they're built, they're spending millions and billions of dollars on the Olympics, mm. um, yet doing nothing to address the sort of poverty that is you know felt by the majority, a lot of people who who are currently living in Rio. And um, there's also lots of implications on Brazil's economy, on how it could be um, impacted. In fact, during the World Cup, mm. when um, the World Cup was um, held in Brazil. Um, there were mass protests against the World Cup actually being there, which is very fair because the World Cup was basically putting mm. more of this money into infrastructure mm. um, that, were, that was, you know, exploiting workers um, and doing nothing, uh, absolutely nothing to address the poverty felt by people. It's actually, in fact, there's, I think there's um, arguments that make, argues that the, the presence of the World Cup was actually making things worse for the Brazilian people in sense why there was yeah, mass protests. cleaning homeless people off the streets. And, yep. Uh, yeah, I saw an interesting uh, sort of, what would you call it, a sort of photo album story going around social media, and uh, it was a series of photos of all these old Olympic facilities. Yep. And <clears throat> I guess that's the other thing is, it would be different if all these Olympic facilities were going to be used afterwards, but so much of it, it's it's built so that there can be a a couple of events held there, and then afterwards, it's uh, it's left to decay, and you just have these concrete relics that cost tens of millions of dollars to build, and then which are just left sitting there. All right. You're listening to Green Earth Radio. Um, we've got a really interesting interview coming up uh, with Dr. Horjin Aziz, uh, who's part of the... She's actually general manager of the Kobani Reconstruction Board um, based in, in northern Syria. Um, so that's a very, very interesting uh, interview that's coming up. Horjin is a former politics lecturer from the University of Newcastle. And, yeah, she gave us a, a talk last night. So stick around. We're going to have that coming up. And here is a message from one of our 3CR supporters. All right. Uh, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It's Friday morning. And potentially you're waking up. Get out of bed. Go and have a coffee or a cup of tea or... I eat an apple or whatever non-caffeine based thing you might do instead of having caffeine. I personally quite enjoy caffeine. Um, all right. M- many years ago, um, seven years ago, in fact, I was lucky enough to go on a thing called the Just Transition Tour. And that was up in the 
Newcastle, Hunter Valley sort of area, although we did go on a little foray down to Canberra, and we did go to uh, the Drip near, where is that, up near sort of Mudgee area. Uh, so we did we did venture out of the Hunter Valley, but the, the, the name of the game, the the theme of the tour was to go and see all of these local communities fighting back against the expansion of the coal industry. And, of course, the coal industry has started to enter a sort of structural decline, but uh, back then the coal industry was booming. Uh, prices were high and the relentless march of coal mines into local communities throughout the Hunter Valley just sort of it looks like there was no end in sight it was really depressing but a lot of people were digging in their heels and saying enough is enough and fighting back against the destruction of aquifers, the noise pollution, the dust pollution uh, the, the economic distortions that come with the mining industry showing up and bulldozing your local little village. So one of the places that we visited was the Liverpool Plains. And that's if you head up the road out of the Hunter Valley and then you head up and you go towards uh, Armadale, you eventually travel through the Liverpool Plains. Now, this is an amazing place. There's a huge um, natural kind of valley and historically, my, I'm not a geologist by trade, but I think what happened over the years is you'd have big storms, would wash all the trees and vegetation from this valley into this natural sort of, um, yeah, valley, this big sort of flat area. And so over tens of millions of years or hundreds of millions of years, again, I'm not a geologist, I don't fully understand it, but over a long period of time, it was almost like there was this natural compost heap formed in the in the Liverpool Plains. <coughs> and there's all these aquifers. So what you have is a naturally really fertile area, which is also quite drought resistant. When a whole bunch of the rest of Australia is in drought, the Liverpool Plains will tend to still be doing okay because of these aquifers, because of the groundwater there. And we went and visited uh, Tim uh, Duddy and Patricia Duddy uh, at Rossmar Park at this at this farm at the Liverpool Plains. And it was kind of weird because this is a well-heeled um, uh, business family who were in agriculture, but they were fighting back tooth and nail against this mine application from BHP Billiton to put a massive open cut mine in their um, in their valley, and the reason that they wanted to build this mine there is because for the for the same reason that there was really fertile soil there, which is trees getting washed from storms into this valley and building up over time. If you rewind the clock even further back, that same process had meant that there were really rich coal deposits even further down below the farm soil. So the mining companies really wanted to have a mine there because it would be a highly profitable place. It was extremely thick, extremely rich seams of coal. 
but the farmers were saying, if you do that, you are going to wreck this naturally fertile, drought-proof, literally some of the best farming land in Australia, if not the world, and you will be destroying our grain bowl, and we, we will not abide this. We will not stand for this. So, fast forward nine years, yesterday, uh, it, I think it's actually in today's uh, Australian Financial Review, the New South Wales government has bought back the coal licence that was issued years ago, to, it, it issued in 2006 uh, to BHP Billiton. They have bought that back for $220 million, and that mine will not be proceeding. So this is really exciting news, really good news for all those people, and it, it's been a funny coalition of people uh, from the Farmers' Federation to, you know, more well-heeled sort of agricultural business people, shall we say, to anti-mining activists, Greens, um, Aboriginal activists who were also not very impressed that their, that their traditional lands were going to be trashed. So, yes, I'm, I'm very excited about that. It's big news. And there's one more mining lease adjacent to that, which is the Shenhua Watermark lease. And so that will be the final piece of the puzzle if they can get the same outcome there and get that mining lease revoked and taken back off Chenoir, um, then a, a big decade-long community campaign will have officially saved the Liverpool Plains. So, yes, I'm excited. It's a really big victory. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. All right. So just um, make a, a sort of apology to some listeners. Um, I will originally going to sort of have an interview with Hashin. Actually, we're still having an interview with Hashin, um, but we just have to wait for another few minutes, and then we'll we get back to it. Because originally, I think there were some announcements that, um, earlier on social media that said it will, there was going to be an interview with Hashin at 7.15 a.m., but that will have changed to 7.30 a.m., and we'll have an interview with her to talk about the Kurdish revolution and what's happening in Kobani. Um, guess, um, maybe I wanted actually to take, um, there's actually an interesting news story about in relation to the Olympics, a more positive story than sort of the negative slant we were given it before. Yeah. Um, in relation to a Palestine, uh, Palestinian swimmer, oh. um, who has, um, um, managed to, um, head, compete in, um, the Olympics this year. Nice. Despite the, the, I guess what you could, um, imagine. Yeah. The, extreme obstacles. Um, mm. In fact, um, Israel's own occupation of West Bank, The twenty. Um, this woman is Mary Al-Tash, who's a Palestinian swimmer. Um, she she has, has to face a lot of barriers. For example, um, she is um, in she she has been forced to you know train in a 25 meter pool, half the regulation size. Mm. Um, she actually had to travel. Um, she recently had the opportunity to travel to Algeria, where she actually had the first opportunity to train in a in an Olympics um, sized pool. Mm. Yet um, it's a just incredible sort of the perseverance of her being able to reach the Olympics despite all obstacles put against her because. Mm. Um, in Palestine, if you're Palestinian, you would pretty much have no access to any of Israelis' um, facilities. Yeah. Um, and then there's the fact that the Israeli army periodically every few years just seems to 
make it their business to just pretty much bomb and destroy everything in Palestine, yep. including swimming pools and related water infrastructure. So, um, yeah, but I guess more broadly is um, is um, the delegation of, of Palestinians competing in um, the Olympics this year will be the largest. Um, it's going to be about six um, Palestinian um, athletes will be compete, um, competing in Rio, and it actually is the largest they've sent to the Olympics since it's first participated in Atlanta in 1996, and five, um, um, and it's, can, it's in contrast to the five athletes who went to London in 2012. Nice. So I wish, I wish them all the best, and, you know, Go the Palestinians. I wonder what their chants are like. Oh, probably like free. Pa- I went to a, um, free free Palestine. I went to. Um, I actually went to, uh, last year. We I went to uh, an amazing um, soccer game between Palestine and Jordan during the oh, Asian yes. Cup. And guess, yes, all the chants were free free Palestine. And yeah, from yeah. the because pal- I was in the Palestine supporters lane, and yeah, it was fantastic. Word, yeah, I wanted to go to that, but. I had work and I couldn't get there till the last 10 minutes of the game, which is a bummer. Yeah. But yeah, it's a really good vibe. Um, I guess we'll go, um, before we move on to our next interview, I guess we could have room for one short news story. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of, uh, there was um, recently um, a rally. Um, many um, people probably know about the sort of Carlton United Breweries um, strike that's come, pro, um, picket line that's currently happened. They had a protest um, yesterday. Unfortunately, I'm um, actually not, I was hoping someone would be in this program today um, that was actually there, but um, from the sort of pictures I saw, there were at least over hundreds of people. Um, they managed to get pretty uh, much larger trade union contingents. Um, and I guess, um, in light of what's been happening, um, the sort of, it's, the ante has sort of increased since, um, last time. Mm. Um, basically pubs are now participating in the boycott of Carlton United Brewery. Yeah. And one of the sort of, um, tactics of where this struggle was going is actually to put pressure on pubs to actually stop, um, stocking Carlton United Breweries. And, um, they're also, um, Trade unions are starting to play a role in organising fundraisers for the striking workers. In fact, there was one on last night at the Trades Hall, and on and in Geelong there will be one, I think, this Friday or next Friday. Um, but it's all it's all sounding like you know, gang, it's, the struggle's starting to really sort of build up, and um, hopefully mm. they'll start. Um, they'll get to a point where they'll win back their jobs. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the most uh, Interesting things is the the boycott of pubs is actually one thing I think that will, is definitely going to increase the pressure um, because you mm. know that is taken away from their profits and I'll have to you know give a shot uh, give an expression of support for the pubs that are actually participating in this boycott which is fantastic and it's a very fantastic initiative and I hope more pubs in Australia follow suit. <laughs> yeah. And I saw a story in Green Left that was saying that uh, I think sales of Carlton United products have reduced by 65% since the uh, boycott and campaign started. So it's having an effect. They're feeling it. Suffering your jocks, Carlton. It's what you get for trying to sack people en masse and offer them their jobs back with a 65% pay cut. Hello. Hello. Ah, yes. Okay, so I'll just introduce um, our guest for the program. We have um, 
Hashim uh, Azze, is that how you pronounce your name? Or Hashim Hashim Aziz. Hashim Aziz, and um, she yeah. is um, she is uh, the director of um, the Kabani Reconstruction um, Board, um, and yeah. is also a former politics lecturer at Newcastle, and um, she's going to be here on the program tonight. You know, as she kind of like has personal first-hand experience of what's happening in Kabani. She's going to be here to talk to us about, um, you know, what's happening there and, you know, the Kabani revolution and everything. So, yeah. Welcome, Hajin. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank I, you so much for having me. Yeah. I guess um, the first question I want to ask is maybe just for, you know, the pleasure of, you know, first-time listeners, um, you know, can you give us sort of like, you know, the background of, you know, what's happening in Rojava and, you know, the Kurdish revolution more generally and we can start from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, so what the Kurdish people have been trying to do in northern Syria, which is this trip uh, of uh, Kurdistan, which we call Rojava, is that, you know, uh, we were basically attacked by ISIS or what we call Daesh. Um, and so the Kurdish people were forced to basically defend themselves against these invading forces. Um, and so as a result, we, call, we created the um, People's Protection Units, which is what we call the Yepaga, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, or the Yepaja, which is the Women's Protection Unit. So in this process of trying to defend ourselves, we've also had to really discuss, you know, a lot of things about what we can do to coexist with one another because northern Syria is actually really, really multicultural. We have so many different ethnic and religious groups. Um, and so in this process, we've been trying to engage in this revolution and actually build a radical democracy, a democracy that's based on three major ideas. Um, and this idea, the first idea is that we want it to be very multicultural and democratic in nature. We want to have a very gender-liberated society where men and women are equal with one another. And this is a very, very radical idea for the Middle East where you know, there's a lot of gender issues at the moment. Mm. Um, and, of course, the third pillar would be we want an ecologically sound society. So what we've been trying to do since the 2011 uprising and the civil war which started is really try to engage in this democratization process in North Syria. We faced a lot of challenges, but at the same time, we've actually uh, you know, achieved a lot of successes. Um, I actually had the pleasure of being in Kobani for about nine months, helping with the rebuilding of Kobani city after ISIS attacked it. Um, and, you know, there are different communes, cooperatives, different councils, city councils, neighborhood councils, uh, which are being formed in order to actually exercise this form of radical democracy. And also this process of democracy is very much based on the idea of reducing the power and the influence of the state and really bringing the democracy back down to the level, to the grassroots level, where you try to democratize society and community um, and get the community to actually make the decisions for themselves. This process involves a lot of education, and, and the people in, in Rojava are really doing a lot of re-education of society, teaching them about civic responsibilities, teaching them about what freedom actually means and involves teaching them about genuine democracy. So it's an incredible, incredible, you know, revolution at the moment that's happening in, in North Syria. It's absolutely brilliant. Right. Um, I guess the next question is, you know, um, um, it's been kind of like described as like, you know, a feminist sort of revolution. And um, can you tell us a <laughs> bit about, you know, in particular, the particulars of, you know, how that is taking place and sort of, you know, yeah. the sort of changes <laughs> that are occurring? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, the Kobani city and Rojava really came to international attention when it was defending itself in 2014, in September, October, November 2014, um, against the invading ISIS uh, terrorists. Um, and it really came into attention because we saw, you know, from the international community through the media, these Kurdish women who were picking up guns and they were going to the front lines. They had formed their own military units 
And they were defending themselves very, very successfully against ISIS, which was a very, very heavily and well-armed um, terrorist organization. But, you know, this, this feminist revolution is actually more than a, a military thing. It means more than just women picking up guns and defending themselves and their community and each other as women. Um, what it means is really a revolution in the way that society is organized, a revolution in the way we understand freedom, a revolution in the way that we understand gender equality and gender relations. So when I was in Kobani, for example, there was the Congress Star, which is the umbrella women's organization, was really engaging a lot of education, um, was actively trying to educate society, men and women, about their relationships with one another, about their role within society. Um, what they've attempted to do is really bring women out of the private sphere, out of the home and into the public area. So we have women in all areas of public uh, and political administration. In every place we need to, in every political party, organization, NGO, civil society group, we have a gender quota, which is a 40 to 60. So you either have to have 60% women and 40% men or vice versa to maintain some sort of a level of equality. We also have the co-chair system, which means that we have to have one male and one female in positions of authority. Uh, so it's not just men dominating all the time, because as we know, in the Western world, it's very difficult for women to try to get to the top layers of authority and positions of power. So we are really reordering and restructuring society, and women are actively taking part in the revolution. They're actively taking part in reorganization of the society. Um, and it's, the women are really literally at the forefront of this revolution on the social level, on the political level, on the economic level. The women are creating the cooperatives and the communes, which are the backbone of the economy and, and this new society. So this revolution is a psychological revolution. It's an emotional, physical, gender, political and financial revolution as well. And the women are leading the way. Right. Okay, so um, the next question, maybe actually it will be an um, angle I actually want to ask this question from is you talk about sort of the democ democratization of, you know, um, Rojava and, you know, what's happening in Kobani. And, you know, considering you're from Australia yourself, um, I would like, yeah. um, <laughs> I'd like to kind of know, you know, what, how is, what, how does, you know, democracy in the Rojava and Kobani differ from, say, the liberal democracy we have in Australia right now? And maybe mm -hmm. there'll be a way of talking about, you know, how things yeah. are being done in, in Rojava compared to, uh, yeah. say, Australia or any other first world liberal yeah. democracy. Or, or perhaps uh, Turkey. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's actually a really, really question because a lot of, good question because a lot of people are thinking, so what's the difference? The difference is that when we live in the Western world, in a place like Australia, there is a propaganda process that encourages apathy towards the political process. Mm. There's this idea that being involved in, in being political, being an activist, it's a really lowly thing to do. Why would you want to do that when you have this incredibly wealthy, rich country where you can actually go and be wealthy, make money, and just and, and be apathetic and be ignorant of the political processes? Our political government and our leadership as well is very, very ignorant, maintains a level of ignorance about some of the issues, some of the conflicts and problems that are occurring internationally. We are only concerned with Southeast Asia because it has a financial impact and relationship for us. We are not encouraged to be more humane, and not encouraged to learn about what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Turkey, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Asia, in places and in countries and in groups and people that have no impact on us, that have no relationship to us, other than the fact that we are human beings and we should care about the suffering of other human beings. So the distinction between the Rojava democracy is that it encourages democratization at the local level. What, it, what that means in practice is that on the street level, we have councils. Every couple of streets, five, six streets, you have one council. Then 
all of these different streets, you know, let's imagine in a neighborhood there's 20 of different these smaller councils. They come together and they have one local council on, in the neighborhood level. And then all of the neighborhood levels in Kobani City, it's a rather small city, there's about 14 neighborhoods. All of the local city council, uh, the neighborhood councils come together and form the city council. So it's levels and layers and layers of democratization. It's not about having once every four years an election where you encourage to uh, vote for two political parties that have absolutely similar political ideologies that make absolutely no difference, uh, no alternatives. No, what it encourages is people making decisions, daily, everyday decisions about their community, about their lives, about the policies and decisions that impact them. But this is not an easy process. Parallel to this process, to this actual physical act of being democratic, going to the council, having local dis- city, you know, street council discussions and the neighborhood council discussions, what that means is that we have a reorganization of society through education. There is education happening at all levels. At the school levels, we have 89-year-olds who are going to these education classes for three, four hours learning about what democracy means, learning about their civic responsibility. We have everybody engaging in relearning and learning for the first time what their responsibilities are, what it really means to live democratically, and what they actually have to do. And this is an important thing. Democracy to live democratically, to live freely, it means responsibility. It means acting. It means being knowledgeable. It means knowing that if I'm going to be living in a free society, I have to actually do something. Contrary to other so-called democracies, such as ACAPA, there's always a centralization of authority and power at the government level. So in a place like Turkey, for example, at the moment, the Erdogan government is just centralizing more and more and more power and authority in his hands or in the hands of a few political elites. And this is the antithesis, the complete opposite of what democracy is, the complete opposite of this radical democracy where we encourage young women, young men, the elderly, everybody in the community to contribute in the decision-making processes in their communities. And this is why it's a truly radical truly, truly radical new democratic system in Rojava. Actually, that's interesting because um, in, um, you're from New South Wales and um, when I was in yep. last in New South Wales, there's been like a recent sort of struggle around sort of the issue of councils and um, the local, I think the MP, um, what, whatever his name, Mike Bard or something, has made a push, you know, to amalgamate um, all the councils, basically reducing the number of councils and reducing the number of representation, <laughs> which is actually, I guess... Um, increase towards the centralization of power and it's like yeah. the complete opposite, you know, of what's, um, you know, happening in Rojava. Um, another question, I guess, is um, covering, um, I want, actually want to ask you a question about your work in Kapani Rikki, but before that, I want to sort of ask a question of, you know, what are sort of the practices um, that they're doing in terms of, like, ecological sustainability, you know? How is it, you know, an ecological revolution in addition to being a feminist one? Okay, that's actually another really, really good question. And before, when I when I was living here in Australia and then I went to Europe to support the, support the rebuilding in, in Kobani, I had a very Eurocentric, very Western understanding of what an ecological society meant and what they were trying to do over there. I thought that maybe, you know, having an ecological society was having, you know, different types of recycling system, making sure that we didn't use toxic, you know, equipment and toxic um, chemicals in, in, in the agricultural processes. And this is part of the uh, ecological revolution in, in Rojava, but it's actually more than that. 
When I actually went to Kobani and I was living there and I was helping with the rebuilding, I realized that it was a very organic, <laughs> no puns intended, a very organic, <laughs> a very natural, a very culturally based understanding of ecology. What we mean by an ecologically sound society is in, in a lot of these uh, societies, in a lot of these cities, um, you know, we don't live in a mega major big city. So we, a lot of people live in, in villages, a lot of people live in smaller cities. What we want to do is preserve the organic way that people have lived for a very, very long time. Now, this doesn't mean that we regress to the Stone Ages and, you know, <laughs> live like cavemen. This is not what we mean. What we mean is that in a lot of these societies, we have very natural, very organic, very ecological processes in the way that we engage in the agriculture, in the way they live in our communities. We are a lot more closer to nature in a lot of these communities. So what that meant was going back to this idea that we should live more organically, that we should really discard some of these extreme modernization processes and practices that we have and go back to practices that we've had that have been very ecological, very safe for the environment and for the world and the, the land that we live in. But we have discarded because of this process of modernization. Now, when I went there, I had this idea that we were going to have, you know, we're going to build our houses from, you know, this uh, ecologically sound organic brick, you know, bricks that we were, uh, mud bricks that we were going to make and we were going to do this and be really, really ecological. We engaged in a lot of ecological practices, but we were also at the same time extremely limited by the resources that we had access to, by the fact that we are completely surrounded by ISIS in the south, by Assad regime in the south, by Turkey, which is very oppressive towards us in the north, and then of course the Kurdistan regional government on the right hand side, which is also closing the borders and preventing in the flow any goods and aid and supplies that we need. So we had to really engage in a very critical discussion in the community about what we meant about an ecologically sound society. And then we started to actually use a lot of cement. And this was one thing that we really, really wanted to not use because cement is obviously not a very ecologically sound um, item to use, a building supply material to use. But unfortunately, we had to really promote this idea of protection before ecology because societies and communities that are in direct danger of terrorism, of violence, state terrorism, cannot be as ecological as we want to be because we need to protect ourselves. So we started to use a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of cement, and we actually started to build some buildings underground, major service buildings that really needed to be protected in the event of an attack, in the event of, for example, if ISIS attacked the city again, and build these um, buildings underground, but then have about 40%, if we're going to have 60%, you know, buildings, we need to have at least 40% uh, sorry, um, uh, trees, parkland, greenery around these buildings. So we are trying to adhere, but I think for me, in my personal experience, the ecological aspect has really suffered in, in a place like Rojava because, again, we are a community under attack, and it's very difficult for us to try to build our houses from organic mud bricks when, you know, bombs could fall on us and, at any minute. And this is one of the radical things as well, you know. Sometimes we had uh, ISIS, the Islamic State, about 20 to 30 kilometers away from us, and we were rebuilding. So this is, you know, a lot of people are like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Why are you building? You know, you should just get everybody to stand on the front lines and defend yourself. But this concept of defending our community, self-protection, isn't just a military self-protection. It's an ecological self-protection of society. It's a psychological and mental self-protection, ideological self-protection of society. So for me, you know, the rebuilding worked parallel with the military protection of the community. Um, and I hope, you know, if I, if I do get a chance to go back, um, that we can really focus more on the ecological aspect and really promote it. Yeah, yeah it sounds like uh, 
if you're able to move beyond this this military phase and and achieve yeah. uh, sort of a democratic autonomy, then that ecological strand is something that will really uh, blossom a lot more in the absence yes, of, <laughs> of yeah. bombs and and constant uh, war, yeah. terrorism. <laughs> um, yes. we, uh, I'm just going to play a quick announcement, but uh, please stay on the line, Hojin, because this is uh, yeah really informative and interesting. Thank uh, you. Yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on yep. 3CR. On 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855am digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Hi, so we're back on the line. And yeah, this is Green Left Radio and we're talking with Hojin Aziz, a former politics lecturer from the University of Newcastle who is now General Manager of the Kobani Reconstruction Board based in An Al Arab in uh, northern Syria or, um, yeah. I guess, I, guess, uh, um, I guess our next question is, you know, um, what can you tell me about the work that you've been doing there? Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, I'm not an engineer and I'm not an architect, but um, what I've been doing in my work to support the rebuilding of Kobani is that uh, there's a lot of issues with information flow, the way that information flows out from Kobani, the needs of the community, what they need for the healthcare system, what they need for the education system, what the level of the quality of water is, what you know the quality and the road system is like. So my work involved actually going physically to Kobani and doing a lot of surveys and collecting a lot of information, preparing all the reports that we needed, and then sending these reports out. Uh, connecting with different NGOs and humanitarian organizations and associations and solidarity groups and individuals that wanted to have an idea of what they could do to support um, Kobani and the rebuilding. So preparing information and reports was a very important part of my work. Um, another aspect of my work was that we, uh, physically being there and, and seeing the rebuilding, uh, actually started to build an archive of the rebuilding process in video form, in photo form, in report form, so that future generations and the international community, those who stand in solidarity with Rojava, can actually in 20, 30, 50, 100 years can look back and see that despite the limitations, despite the fact that there is a huge, there's basically a complete humanitarian embargo placed on Rojava, you know, the borders are closed from Turkey, from Iraq, um, despite these massive limitations, despite the fact that there's a war going on, we managed to actually rebuild this city, a city which was destroyed up to 80%. Um, under extreme conditions. Um, and so the documentation of the project, the documentation of the process of rebuilding Kobani, 
process of history making uh, was also a very, very important part of my process. Um, information flow through speaking to a lot of journalists, um, speaking about what we are trying to do, what the rebuilding means in relation to its ideological implications for our society and community. The fact that the revolution isn't just about a military revolution. It isn't just something about our young men and women, the Yepaga and the Yepaja, defending themselves and their communities and other people from advancing uh, ISIS terrorists. It's actually a, a mental revolution. It's a psychological revolution. And that has permeated the way that we wanted to rebuild this new city, the way that we wanted Kobani to reflect this ideological shift and this radical democracy. Uh, so my work really involved a lot of these process of uh, really information gathering and information spreading. And there's so many different organizations, different people groups who are really interested about what's happening in Kobani and wanted to know. So connecting with these, uh, these groups and organizations was very important. Now that I'm back in Australia, now that I'm back in also Europe, uh, I'm doing engaging in a lot of seminars, a lot of discussions and talks with a lot of solidarity groups and actually speaking to them about what appropriate solidarity for Rojava involves and what we need them to do. I guess um, that's a good um, sort of line to end, um, end because I, I'm not end um, because I want to ask you another question. Um, the question of you know solidarity, you know, how can you know you know listeners on this program and you know people even us can you know you know support you know what's happening in Kobani and you know how can we you know help? I've heard because um, I saw you speak at a forum in relation to you know the Kobani school project and that seems to be like yeah. another avenue of you know support. But yeah, I'm interested in hearing you yeah. about you. Yes, definitely. I think uh, a lot of solidarity groups are actually very confused about what they can do to support Rojava. And I think the first thing that they really should do is engage in a lot of self-learning, learning about who the Kurdish people are, learning about democratic confederalism and, and Abdullah Ozalan and, and, you know, this concept of how these ideas of democratic confederalism came about, the history of the Kurdish people, learning about the Middle East. This process of self-education is a very, very important part of proper, appropriate, informed, educated solidarity. Uh, engaging with different other groups and associations, other solidarity groups, seeing what they're doing is also really, really important. Speaking to people and connecting to people who are experienced or who are from there, speaking and connecting with the Kurdish community. For example, in here in, in Melbourne, we have the, uh, the Victorian Kurdish community and the Kurdish community hall that you can connect with and go and participate in their fundraising nights, in the concerts that they try to raise to support some of these projects that we have over there. We I think also have the, uh, the Australians for Kurdistan Association, which is also a really good, uh, good solidarity group that you can connect with as well. Um, but really speaking, and, and there's a lot of websites, there's a lot of Facebook pages, there's a lot of activity on social media from people who support Rojava, but also people who are from Rojava as well. So connecting with them is a very, very important part. Listening to the Kurdish community, trying not to impose uh, your ideas of your centric values and you know basically trying to colonize what the Kurdish people are trying to do is a very, very important part. In relation to uh, the, uh, the Kobani Reconstruction Board, we actually have a website and a Facebook page. Our website is called helpkobani.com. Uh, and you can go there and get a lot of information of, about some of the projects uh, that we are trying to build in Kobani. There's also a donation section where you can have the PayPal options where you can support some of our projects. At the moment, one of our most important projects is that we are building a school. I don't want to use the word or orphanage because it's not, it's not that, it's more than that. It's a school to support to um, support the uh, children who have been orphaned or who have lost their mothers or fathers during the process of the resistance against Daesh, against ISIS. Um, and we are building this school, and it consists of about a 
spaces for about 600 children because that's how many children, orphan children that we have in Kobani. And he also has a dormitory. Um, you know, in a place like Kobani, where it's basically a, a, a small city, we really lack the psychological support and help that a traumatized, war-torn community needs and requires. We're really struggling in relation to the psychological aspect of trying to move on and normalize our lives in Kobani. So I think this school is going to be a really, really important project to actually bridge that gap in the trauma and bridge that gap in, in trying to encourage the community, encourage the children who are the most important part of our societies and our communities, especially for the future and, and this concept of the de- radical democracy. It's so important that we support them. So we are trying to build this school, school to support these children. If you want to know more information, you can go to helpkobani.com or you can co- connect with the Australians for Kurdistan uh, group. They have a website you can go to and, and visit. It's called. It's on www. Um, Australians for Kurdistan. One, you know, three words all connected together. Australians for Kurdistan. org for further information. Hi, ah, um, I guess we're about to, um, out of time now because we've got to get on to another interview. But uh, that was a <laughs> fantastic you. interview. Um, thank and, um, you so Thank much. you very much really um, for being on our thank program. And yeah, thanks so thank much. Thank you very, Rosie. very much. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Oh, you this too. Really you too. Really inspiring. Very inspiring, yeah. Hey, thank you. All right. It's, uh, it's Friday morning. You're listening to Green Life Radio. The weekend is coming up real soon, which is always good. Have a break from selling your labour to a capitalist if that's what you happen to be doing. And yeah. sweet. Um, alrighty, we've got our next interview coming up, uh, which is with Craig McGregor uh, to discuss the VAPHA EBA victory. Um, alrighty, uh, Craig, are you there? Yes. Hi. So I guess the first question is, you know, um, um, sorry, uh, you can talk to um, us about, um, you know, the recent Victorian Allied Health Professionals um, EBA ritual and um, how that went about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, look, we've been in bargaining for about 12 months, a little bit over, um, and we've, we've progressed things bit by bit, but predominantly when we took action is the fact of the matter. So um, we had an issue initially where... Um, the government and the hospitals refused to bargain with us for months, in fact. Um, of course, we had a rally in that day. We met with the health minister, and the next day, formal bargaining started, you know. Um, we were negotiating. We came up to 30 June. Um, we were stuck on a few issues. We took industrial action, half a day stopped working across the state, um, and we moved on about 80% of the sticking points. You know? And then, of course, we had a stop work on the 4th of August, um, and about an hour before the um, the mass meeting went ahead, we got final resolution. So I guess the key takeaway to me is that if you want things to happen, you've got to be organised, unified, and be prepared to take take action. So, um, But more broadly, um, we've put in place a framework that I think um, will set up allied health for the next 30 years. It's a, it's a fantastic structural outcome that really fits a contemporary healthcare environment in a way that our previous agreement didn't at all. Nice. Bit of uh, DA, bit of direct action, getting the goods. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's really clear that that's the way to go. Uh, just for the listeners, what's, um, which workers in particular does the uh, VAHPA cover? 
Uh, so we, we're VARPA, is what we call ourselves, and Vapa, that's yeah. back to the 80s, to our, our preceding organisation. But um, so allied health professionals, physios, OTs, occupational therapists, that is, radiation therapists, um, social workers. So it's, it's a broad array of workers, but, you know, those crucial allied health workers that um, you really, they're a bit hidden in the hospitals, but uh, if they don't do their job, then the system doesn't uh, doesn't happen. Yeah, right. Um, and was there any sort of, do you collaborate with other health unions in your campaign work or what's that like? What's your relationship with other health unions? Oh, yeah, we, we talk to the nurses um, quite a bit, um, work with them. We work with Haksu, who are another branch of the HSU. So we're a branch of the HSU. Um, we work with Haksu pretty closely and um, also uh, medical scientists who are another branch of the HSU. So we actually work pretty well with a lot of the health unions. Um, have a good relationship with the uh, AMBOs as well. So, yeah, that's improved, I think, in the last uh, maybe four years, um, that you know, uh, ability to work collaboratively there. And I think we just were on a trajectory to um, to keep uh, that getting tighter and tighter. So, yeah, really happy about the relationships we've got there. Yeah, right. And you mentioned this uh, sort of new bargaining structure that will be in place uh, for coming years. But can you tell us a bit more about how that how that works? Uh, well, the new structure for allied health professionals, so our previous uh, career path was put, put in place in 1966. Um, and so one of the key things, the key objectives we had really with this outcome, sorry, with this round of bargaining, was to restructure that so it was fit for purpose and, and fit for the contemporary healthcare environment. And so we've done that and we've created space for, for research work to actually be implemented on the ground and for educational structures to be there so that the students and uh, junior staff members can be properly educated and we've put in place proper managerial structures, etc. Um, and one of the other key things we've done in, is put in place uh, an advanced clinician uh, stream or area of expertise that the government wanted to call it, um, which allows for allied health professionals to really maximise their potential and engage in a whole lot of work that, that's really advanced and um, streamlines the healthcare system significantly. So, so that structure... Um, will really keep us in good stead and in, in terms of the way that allied health professionals deliver their stuff in the hospitals um, for a long time to come. Yeah, right. And um, what about the the Turnbull government uh, or the Abbott government before it have made a lot of um, uh, cuts to health funding? Is that something else that VARPA is uh, involved in, in campaigning around? Yeah, look, we're very disturbed about those cuts and we're yet to see uh, the implication of them yet. Um, we're fortunate that the Andrews government uh, at this point in time has the money uh, and, and the political will to do the right thing around health. Um, hmm. But that's going to come and bite soon um, and you know we'll, we'll really need to campaign around that. I mean, what we need to do is change the federal government. And I think that that's the first port of call there to overcome that problem. With the Tories. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> said it again. Yep, boo the Tories. They're killing health and uh, you know and education, etc. They're a real problem. Yeah. Um, guess well, I guess um, trying to think actually a question. Um, do you sort of have? I think we're almost sort of near the end of the interview. But I guess, um, Craig, what do you have any sort of concluding kind of thoughts of you know any um you like you like to say onto the program? How how can people support Viper and and kind of link up? Yeah, look, um, I, I think um, for the allied health professionals out there, 
it's just time to join the union. We've had a massive increase in growth in the last 24 months. We've increased by over 50%. So we're getting people back on board, and that's what we need to keep up. We need to keep that growth going. Uh, and unions really need to be active on the ground. That's the secret to growth. You know, it, it's, it's not magic. You just get out there and, and you fight with your members um, and you engage in, in struggle. You know, I think that's um, something we've got to take very, very seriously. Mm. Yeah, the, um, the sort of just my cool comment. Um, the democratisation um, of you know structures, you know, sounds actually quite exciting for me because I'm particularly part of a union that actually doesn't really have any sort of real structures to get involved in. It's all really sort of top down, and just the union or, the union organised at the top, and there's really nothing to sort of get involved in for a rank and file member like. Uh, so, so actually, what the sort of changes that um that you uh, that are happening in your union sound really sort of exciting and sort of sounds like a like a model for which you know other unions could grow into. Yeah, well, my point of view is that you know the union's only as effective as the members are active, hmm. and so if you want people to be active, you've got to engage them. You've got to provide them with every opportunity to get involved, to run for every position on the committee of management to step up as a delegate, to do training, just every opportunity to involve people in a real way is vital, and that's how you become a strong union. Otherwise, you know, you end up with a union boss rather than a union leader. Mm. You know, you want a, a leader that genuinely represents the members. It's, it's, you know, it's not rocket science, and I guess to some extent there's a bit of self-protection and uh, uh, etc. going on there, but that's not what we're about, and, um, you know, I think... Uh, hopefully, uh, there's a lot of unions around the place who are starting to think maybe the grassroots is the way to go. Mm. Yeah, it seems like in the wake of that sort of Kathy Jackson HSU scandal, there's been like a quite a bit of a rebirth of the union, uh, particularly here in, in Victoria. So that's good to see. I think um, I'm very interested in the BLF Green Bands, and uh, there was this real sort of nasty leadership of the union back in the 60s. And then there was that real kind of, it's like it reached a crisis point or a breaking point. And then there followed this real democratisation of the union that was really healthy for, for members. It, it, it brought real gains for the whole membership to, to have that kind of that rebirth of the union. Yeah, I think that's right at some point. You really do need to reach a crisis point before you can have a, a thorough clean out. And, and, you know, that's what we did. We came in and there wasn't a single member of staff remaining. The culture changed totally overnight. Hmm. So, and that allowed us to build a union in, you know, according to a philosophy that we thought was really going to work. And I guess you know, you, you, it's, it's difficult to do that until there's a crisis point, until people realise, you know, shit, we have to do something here. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that you necessarily need that crisis point. You know, if you've got a vigilant membership and they're prepared to, to really fight, and obviously, you know, the membership can be up against it if the structures aren't there, but keep... You know, building that pressure, um, I think you can uh, achieve things you wouldn't have thought possible. Yeah. yeah. Wicked. All mm -hmm. right. Well, uh, really good to talk to you, and thanks for the update. No worries. And uh, good yeah. to see you up at kicking some goals. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey. Thank, yeah, you thank, thank you very much. Thank you for the interview. Right. Good on you. Okay. Bye-bye. Catch you around. Uh, yes, so Craig McGregor there from the uh, the Vic Allied Health Professionals Association, BARPA. Oh. We'll just... Are we going to play a quick announcement? Oh, yeah, we'll play a little... And then we'll go straight to the activist calendar. Okay, activist calendar. Alrighty. Uh, well, probably one of the first things to mention 
if you're in the city, if you're near Flinders Street Station, Savo, stop in out the front of Flinders Street, get a coffee of Grand Left. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's go the stalls um running from four to six p.m. on Flinders Street, and also you can also get it on the weekend um every Saturday at the Coburg Mall, um yes on Sydney on um, right off Sydney Road. Um, now I guess an important actually announcement. This is an uh, emergency one actually. Um. Uh, many of um, listeners have probably heard about the Bendigo Street occupation um, that's currently yeah. happening. Um, they have actually recently been placed with an eviction notice by the Victorian Police. Um, and now the, the, org, um, the activists who are currently occupying um, Bendigo Street and Parkville, um, the houses back where I coin on for emergency sort of action. All um, hands on deck. All hands on deck from 3pm um, to, uh, well, 3pm, um, for the next three hours to the, tonight at 3 p.m., um, though they actually potentially might need um, people there as soon as possible. So um, if you're actually available, um, come down there if you can. Um, but 3 p.m. is the time um, and from there, and bring, and you can bring a bring a sleeping bag because I am expecting they're expecting I guess any sort of people who are willing to be um, to be have their hands there um, to be there from 20, for 24/7 for the next 48 hours from 3 p.m. Yeah, stay tuned to 3CR throughout the day and, uh, yeah, keep listening for updates because it looks like the filth are going to try and, I don't know, kick people out and, uh, the way to stop that happening is power and numbers. Yeah. Alright, so now moving on to, um, the next series of events, um, on, on Saturday there will be a MAP, um, W annual dinner, um, on August, Saturday, August 13th, 6.30pm, um, at the Courthouse of um, 80, Courthouse Hotel, which is on 86-90 Errol Street in North Melbourne, um, and it's organised by the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Um, on Sunday, um, there'll be um, the annual, um, sort of annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair um, from 10am to 4pm, uh, on the Sunday, August 14th, and, and they'll be at the Town Hall corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street in Brunswick. Um, to give you just a brief preview, there will actually also be lots of works. It won't just be a book fair. There will actually be workshops and um, speeches happening, and one particular speech will be, um, uh, I think at 12 p.m., there'll be uh, a sort of panel with or sort of workshop with... Um, Gary Foley and Claire Han, um, oh, Claire nice. Lance, which should be um, a particularly interesting session. Um, on Sunday, there'll be a Rock for Renewables, Yes to Renewables fundraiser. That'll be happening on Sunday, the 14th of August at 7pm. Um, it'll be at the Old Bar, at, uh, which is um, actually probably near near where FreeCR is. The Old Bar, at 74 to 76 Johnson Street in Fitzroy. Um, they'll be on next Wednesday, um, they'll be on the Wednesday 17th, there'll be a book launch of Tactical Rape in, um, War and Conflict, um, basically talking about, um, they'll be at Readings Bookstore at 6.30pm on Ligon Street, um, it's a book by Brenda Fitzpatrick, which, um, use, um, analyzes its use as an act of war against civilians and international progress, away from tactical ex- acceptance towards active re- rejection of this violation of international law. Mm. Um, next Thursday, there'll be a film screening, um, The Woman Who Were Never There. Um, it'll be happening at the Shrades Hall, um, 6.30pm at the New Council Chambers. Um, it's, um, on, it's basically about um, a, short, a dramatic short film about a, a story of a determined group of women who made their first attempt to get work at a male-dominated 
Port Kempler Steelworks in 1973. Their struggle laid the groundwork for the 1980s Jobs for Women campaign that followed. From factory lock-ons to workplace tragedy, from conscious raising to youth rebellion, it is an expiring story of women struggling for equality. Bar and refreshments available from 5.30pm at Bella Union, and the film event starts at 6.30pm with a ticket prices of $20 solidarity, $10 regular, $5 concession. Yeah, I was at the um, Socialism for the 21st Century Conference in Sydney, and I got to see the trailer for that film. I cannot uh, recommend it highly enough. It's really inspiring, the uh, the little trailer that they put together for this uh, short film. It's really electrifying stuff. Okay. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of migrant women uh, living in uh, Port Kembla. It's, it's, uh, it's got similarities to like, Geelong or Newcastle, a lot of, a lot of unemployment. It's uh, um, historically just been an area that's... Yeah, it's it's not at the top of the economy. It's not the place with the highest employment, and yeah, these women waged a really inspiring campaign to to get jobs at the steelworks. It's uh, I, I'll be there, and I'm I'm super excited. It's mm. it's an amazing short film. Um, and also on that same night, there will um, also be a fundraiser for the Carlton Drought Relief, um, which will be at Thursday, August 18th, 7.30pm at the Bendigo Hotel um, in Collingwood, 125 Johnson Street. Um, you can possibly actually go to both events, actually, because um, I'm sure that fundraiser will be going on way beyond 7.30pm. Yeah, right. And, um, and the, the Woman Who Were Never There is quite a short film, so you can go to The Woman Who Were Not There... Um, see the film. Stick around for discussion. And then go straight um, for drinks and support the striking Carlton United Brewery right. workers. So, so that's like your itinerary. Thursday night, Trades Hall first, 6.30pm, and then head down to the Bendigo Hotel at Collingwood to drink some non-Carlton beer. Yeah, and, and support, support the, the workers. Support the striking <laughs> Um, on, on Friday, um, the Red Cinema presents Kurdistan Women at War. Um, if you really enjoyed that interview um, that we had um, on previously, this will actually be uh, actually a good opportunity to get um, to find out more actually about what's happening more visual kind of. It's a film directed by Marlene Salur and it's produced by the German French television uh, TV channel Art. And um, the screen will be followed by discussion, and it will be at the Resistance Centre, um, Level 5, re- 407 Swanson Street, opposite IMIT, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. For more, interview, um, for more info, phone 9639-8622. Um, on, in two weeks, there will be a pro- uh, National Day of Action um, against, um, against university in- Increasing university fees, protest no to 100k degrees. That'll be at Wednesday, the 25th of August on 2pm at the State Library in Swanson Street. Um, another sort of spec, we have another sort of special, there'll be another special sort of forum happening on the 26th of August. Um, we have a, um, there's a guest speaker from United States, Carl Wells, who will actually, um, be potentially a guest on Green Left Weekly Radio, so watch that space. Um, she's the founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of Political Graphics in Los Angeles. Um, and she, and her form, she's going to be speaking about art and politics. Can art save a planet or stop a war? And they'll be at Friday, 26th of August, 6.30 p.m. at the Resistance Center, level, which is at level 5, 407 Swanson Street. 
Um, that should be a very interesting event and I'm actually particularly very looking forward to that. Um, the following Saturday, there'll be a rally, um, especially in light of the um, Nauru um, files leaked by The Guardian. This will be a very important protest um, to go to. A rally, close the camps, bring the refugees here. That will be at Saturday, the 27th of August at 1pm at the State Library. And um, that's closed up. Oh, also on that night, there'll be a 10th annual John Cummins Memorial Fund dinner on Saturday, the 27th of August, 6.30pm at the Flemington Racecourse. Come on. And that is in it for sort of the announcements we have. All right. You're back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we're nearing sort of the end of the show, but I guess we can have uh, a bit of discussion about, um, you know, some of the exciting developments happening. Well, we've actually been talking about Jeremy Corbyn every week, but I think it's actually worth talking about him every week, um, especially um, with the courage that we have in the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, in Green Left Weekly, um, we have an article about Corbyn's 10 Pledges for a Fair Society. Um, on August 14th, um, Jeremy Corbyn sort of t- uh, had a pledge to rebuild Britain um, by creating a million jobs and homes. And he essentially, this is, um, he put down his sort of platform for um, by which he'll be probably running in for the general election when the next election happens in Britain. He made 10 pledges. Um, these pledges are an economy that works for all. The second pledge is secure homes for all, um, free security at work, for secure, secure our NHS, which is the, our health and social care, a free national education service, and six, action to secure our environment, seven, democracy and economy, eight, cut income and wealth inequality, and act to end produce injustice, injustice, and ten, peace and injustice abroad. I guess, you know, there's no real, I have no real disagreements of any of those pledges. Um, it's a very kind of exciting, you know, especially, you know, talking about um, housing for all, um, because uh, when you look in, into Australia, um, the whole, you know, in light of, you know, the Bendigo Street occupations that are happening, you know, public housing is something that's completely off the radar. Um, in fact, it's all been sort of replaced by, Social housing, which is not public housing because it doesn't guarantee any sort of human rights, um, and um, it, and it's just a it's a, the fact that Corbyn is running on this platform and there's ex- actually an exciting part that he actually win the election. Of course, he's still right now in um, the midst of a leadership election. He's getting put to the vote, um, but it seems very likely that he'll win at this point, um, despite. Yeah. Or the Blairites sort of putting all stops to prevent him from getting elected. Yeah. I, I read a Facebook post and it was saying that um, uh, uh, Corbyn's opponent, Owen Smith, was coming a third in a two-horse race. <laughs> so there was more more votes for like there was more abstentions than there were votes for Owen Smith. <laughs> so yeah, Jeremy Corbyn trouncing Owen Smith and will be re. His mandate as leader of the British Labour Party will be renewed. Yep, and I guess there's another another article to um, put to um, in also on on Corbyn is um, basically an article by Charlie Allen. Um, it's reprinted from a bridge from the Morning Star, and it's uh, it's an article where he talks about um, you know um, sort of how the establishment is sort of putting or is putting all stops to smear Corbyn at every opportunity. Um, one of the more interesting things um, with the Corbyn campaign is the role of momentum, 
who are, we did an interview with them um, several weeks uh, with one of the organisers of Momentum actually several weeks ago. And Momentum are actually playing the role of actually mobilising um, supporters of Corbyn. They're like a grassroots sort of organisation, you know, with democratic structures in it and so on, that they played the role of, you know, supporting um, and campaigning for Corbyn. And uh, especially they have a role of mobilising hundreds and thousands of people to protest. And one, I guess, one of the sort of interesting things this article suggests is that um, momentum have been kind of smeared by the establishment as like, you know, um, they've, they're smeared on a lot of grounds on the fact that they're actually, what they're actually doing, you know, especially for young people, is they're, they're getting people active in politics, um, you know, as, as, um, as, you know, when we're talking, discussing the previous interview, you know, what's happening, you know, the differences between democracy and Kobani mm. and Australia is that, you know, in Australia, we're not, we're not, you know, but we're, it, it's, we're actually looked down for actually even getting active in politics. Mm. But what momentum is doing is they're getting, you know, people who were previously populistly apathetic towards mm. politics and they're getting them active. They're getting them involved in actual campaigning and, you know, struggle and, and so on, and it's getting them excited about politics. And, you know, the, the fact that, you know, there's actually what's even interesting is there's been, um, by one particular Labour politician who's running the leadership election, I forgot what his name was, probably a good, actually, he's not Owen Smith, <laughs> um, um, but he made this sort of um, comment um, to the effect that, um, uh, that, that, the, that the Socialist Workers' Party, or... Um, a Schrotskist group in um, Britain is playing a game of entryism into the Labour Party. Oh, yeah. It's a, uh, it's a Trotskyist which is, which is um, when you look at the, you know, the existence of momentum, it's actually a completely ridiculous assertion because momentum is drawing in members. Mm. Uh, it has thousands of members who are actually not affiliated with mm. any... Um, Tom, Tom so Watson, I think that was. Yes, Tom Watson. That who's, was. who's kind of... He's also sort of... Kind of from the left-ish of the British Labor Party, from what I understand. Yep. And he he played a good role when the News of the World scandal went down, and there was that sort of inquiry into the Murdoch media. He was like hammering the Murdoch media, but there's him and there's someone else as well who are kind of more progressive left-ish voices in the Labor Party who've kind of turned on Corbyn and mm-hmm. gone, ooh, look out for the Trotskyist takeover. Yeah, but the, the, the most exciting thing actually is that it's actually not a Trotskyist takeover because I remember actually years ago when um, Corbyn won the leadership election, it actually, um, the, the position of actually a lot of um, radical left groups um, was actually they, did, they weren't actually supporting a call to actually join the Labor Party. Um, they'll actually, um, their line was actually, you know, support of what Corbyn's doing, but we're not going to join the Labour Party. Mm. And the radical left, um, in Britain is actually quite small. And in fact, <laughs> if they were, um, if they all pledged to become supporters of the Labour Party, it that, actually wouldn't be, an, be a minority. it wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be enough to get, um, Corbyn elected, uh, as a leader for the mm. Labour Party. It was actually took the, you know, the majority, it took, um, because the thousands of people actually join Labour who are not affiliated with any um, um, any particular radical left grouping, mm. and that's what's exciting about you know Corbyn. He's drawing in thousands of people who have probably never been involved in mm. activist politics before, and he's getting them, and he's managed to win the leadership elections. On he's become a leader on that basis of 
drawing in all, all that mass support. Mm. And I think the, I, I think it's still important to be cautious because we looked at the Bernie Sanders campaign. Bernie lost that campaign, and then he ended up sort of trying to, uh, what's what's the term? He ended up acting as a sheepdog for yeah. the for the Democratic Party, well. and uh, probably I think the the Corbyn the Corbyn phenomena actually has deeper participatory roots mm. than the Sanders thing. There's yep. actually more of a basis for democratising well, the party. I'll give my, uh, my personal opinion as I think the Corbyn ha- thing, um, Corbyn is a much different beast from Bernie Sanders, but mm. Corbyn actually comes from a radical left background. Um, I think I've said that in the show before, but Corbyn is actually um, has always been that type of politician that has literally always been on the front lines of any struggle. Um, he's never, you know, given in to sort of any... Um, he's always voted against the Labour Party line. Oh, mm. almost getting out of time here. Um, guess we can sort of end the point where, um, where yeah, Corbyn is, has always been on sort of the front line of struggle and the biggest difference is Bernie Sanders, while has made sort of a lot of progressive sort of um, in his sort of time as independent. He's never, his voting history is probably as in a parliamentarian is not as clean as, say, Jeremy Corbyn, who's always been on the right side of history, essentially. Mm. Um, which, Word. All but, right. yeah, um, we're getting to the near the end of the show. Um, I guess I'll thank listeners for listening to the program. Um, it's yeah. been actually quite a good program, um, despite, you know, some issues with the first interview, the fact that we managed to get that in. And yeah, thanks fantastic so much interview. to, to Jorge Aziz and to Craig McGregor. So, yeah, really, really good to have a bit of an in-depth discussion about Kobani. Yeah, and um, I'll see, we'll see our listeners um, next, well, we won't see our listeners, we'll talk to our listeners next week, um, next Friday. We will see you in our imagination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again. You're listening to 3CR. Stick around. Beyond Zero Emissions is coming up next. Yeah.